We'll be reading from Mark chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Please go ahead and turn there. Mark is working at a breakneck pace through the story of Jesus. Last week was just the introduction. Now we see John the Baptist appearing and Jesus' baptism. Before we read this story, let us once again ask the Lord to enlighten our eyes to understand his word. Let's pray. Gracious God, we know that our, in our finitude, we cannot grasp the things of heaven, spiritual things. So we ask that you, by your spirit, would give us the ability to understand. Your spirit would soften our hearts, convict us, comfort us, and open our eyes to see these things in front of us. We thank you again for Jesus Christ. Would we see him lifted up now as Mark lifts him up in this, these passages? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here, Mark chapter one, verses four through 11. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Here in our passage, your Bibles probably already have marked a section change between verses 8 and 9. So we'll have the first few verses here, verses 4 through 8, and then we have naturally verses 9 through 11 that we'll take together. We'll break this into three parts, as any good Presbyterian sermon has three parts. First, we'll look at the fact that John the Baptist calls Israel to repentance. Verses 4, 5, and 6. John the Baptist calls Israel to repentance. Verses 4, 5, and 6. Then we'll have an interlude with verses 7 and 8 where we see the comparison between John the Baptist and Jesus. And then we'll see Jesus who comes to fulfill all righteousness in verses 9, 10, and 11. We have John's call to righteousness. We'll have a comparison interlude. And then we'll look at Jesus' call, Jesus' fulfillment of all righteousness in verses 9, 10, and 11. So here in the first verses, four, five, and six, we see the strange figure showing up on the scene in the wilderness, wearing a cloak of hair, wearing a leather belt, eating locusts and wild honey. So we're going to look at who is this John? And then we're going to look at what is he doing? What is his baptism? His clothes may seem to be just a stray comment, but Mark is drawing attention specifically to his wardrobe because this John the Baptist is supposed to be the second Elijah. 
And in fact, he is, because if you look at the story of the first Elijah in 2 Kings 1, he's described as wearing a garment of hair and a leather belt. So Mark is drawing attention to this saying, his message, yes, is consistent, but also just look at him. This is the second Elijah. This is the one prophesied in the verses that we looked at last week with the the messenger coming in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord. Here he is. And in case that doesn't convince you that John the Baptist is the second Elijah, the expected last prophet, then Jesus in Mark 9 calls him the Elijah that they refused, that they did not listen to. So John the Baptist is the second Elijah. And what that means is that he's the last prophet before God's judgment. And so if John the Baptist is the second Elijah, he's the last prophet in Israel before God arrives on the scene and judges his people, that means his existence as a prophet is for warning. He is out there in the wilderness telling Israel, repent, turn from your sin. God is coming. The day of judgment is near. He is there for warning. The role of the prophets throughout the Old Testament, for much of the Old Testament, was to call Israel back to covenant faithfulness, the wayward Israel that has wandered away. The prophets come and remind them, look at your covenant relationship that God has made with you. Come back to your God. And that is what John the Baptist is doing. He's calling these Jewish people to come back, repent of your sin, confess your sins, and come back to your God, especially with the impending day of judgment. Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in Exodus 19. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yet we heard in Isaiah in the reading earlier how corrupt Israel has become. And so John the Baptist is preaching these people to return, warning them, come back to your God. So it sounds like doom and gloom, but if you remember last week, the wilderness tells us something important about John's message. John comes in the wilderness, which is a place of restoration. The wilderness is where God taught Israel to trust him. The wilderness is where God gave his law. The wilderness is where he woos Israel back in Hosea. In the wilderness here is where the message of hope is proclaimed by John the Baptist. The wilderness is a place of hope. So despite the coming arrival of God and the judgment, John the Baptist is making it clear there's also hope. Good news is to be expected from this strange second Elijah proclaiming this news in the wilderness. And what he's doing is baptizing. And we have to ask, what kind of baptism is this John doing? Is it an Old Testament baptism where it's a washing in order to come into the presence of of God into the temple? Is it a purity cleansing? Is it a New Testament baptism? Like all those who are baptized into Christ? Is it a proselyte baptism for the Gentiles who became Jews and joined the Jewish faith? There has been a lot of ink spilled and a lot of study done on this by scholars and theologians without a certain answer. But here's what we do know about John's baptism. It does indicate a ceremonial and legal cleansing like the Old Testament washings. It also requires a heart cleansing. Like all obedience to God in the Old Testament and the New Testament is a heart issue. And this baptism also foreshadows and points forward to the forgiveness of sins that comes in Christ. So 
So it seems to be its own type of baptism. It's kind of a transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament baptisms. But let's look at its ceremonial cleansing element in verse 4. You see, in baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. This repentance, as we mentioned before, would be turning from one's sin back to the God of, of their covenant. And it's also a reminder to the Jewish people that being Jewish isn't enough to get you through the impending day of the Lord. You have to turn from your sin. John was calling the Jewish people to resubmit to the law as Israel did in Nehemiah 8, to confess their sins, to recovenant themselves to obedience to this God. It's like a legal rebinding of oneself to the promises that you made earlier that Israel would, as they were supposed to be, be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. It is a re-identification as God's people and a promise to keep the law. That's the ceremonial element to his baptism. There's also the heart cleansing because John's baptism is going beyond just doing better and saying you're going to keep the law and re-identifying as one of God's people. It also signifies repentance, turning from one's sin in the heart, confessing them, drawing near again to the God of the covenant, to love him. This seems to be the heart of John's message. His baptism highlights the repentance. The repentance is the moral, ethical element, a heart condition deeper than just a national identity or this legal identity to the law. So we have a ceremonial element, the heart cleansing, but we also have an anticipation of forgiveness of sins in this baptism. That's what verse four says. It's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we would be foolish to say that the baptism itself forgives sins. We know that that's not the case. After all, John is proclaiming this baptism of forgiveness of sins. It's a proclamation on his part of a forgiveness of sins that is done by somebody else. It's signaled by baptism. This forgiveness of sins is anticipated by his baptism, and it's accompanied by repentance and confession of sin and we will get to where that forgiveness of sins comes from. So John is a great prophet. In fact, some considered him to be the greatest prophet. He has a great message that is consistent with what God is expecting him to reveal, preparing the way for this coming one. He was reawakening Israel to their God, calling people back to a place of humility and obedience. And he was the first true prophet in Israel in over 400 years. So the silence is over. There are lots of people coming to him from all Jerusalem and Judea. There was no prophet more popular than John in those days. But that moves us into our interlude where we have to compare John to Jesus. Because John compares himself to Jesus. If this prophet is this great, how is this new guy that he's preparing the way for going to be any better? So let's look at that interlude here in verses 7 and 8. Verse 7 says, And he, that is John, preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. First he says, After me comes he who is mightier than I. What kind of person could be mightier than this prophet who has the authority of God, who speaks preparing the way for the Messiah. What kind of 
person could be mightier than John the Baptist. And he gives us this analogy here, this image with the sandals. Imagine feet that had walked for miles on dusty roads. Probably not washed since last night. Probably sweaty. And then imagine the act of bending down and untying those sweaty sandals with dirt stuck on them. That job would be too honorable for John the Baptist. That's what John the Baptist says. I'm not worthy to do the dirty work of untying his dirty shoes. That's how great this coming one is. This coming one must be unfathomably mightier in an entirely different class. This makes any human seem too ordinary. Indeed, it must be the Messiah and even more, the God-man Messiah. God incarnate, the one who came after John. And then John compares his baptism with the baptism of this coming one. John says, I baptize you with water, but he's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. No mortal can baptize with the Holy Spirit on his own authority. That has to be from God. This is consistent with the Old Testament expectation that the Spirit of God would be poured out on God's people in those last days, as Joel talks about. And Jesus promises that he's going to send the Spirit to be with his people after he departs. What this passage is not saying is that you need to be baptized with water once and then there, there, then there will be a second baptism in the Holy Spirit. This is talking about one baptism for the remission of sins that signifies the presence of the Holy Spirit for all of God's children, for all those who believe in Jesus. And so Jesus then offers a baptism not just of water, but of water signifying the presence of the Holy Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. What a gift to be welcomed into that. And that's baptism. That is Christian baptism. This coming one must then be greater than anyone who's ever walked this earth. Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, or even a second Elijah. So the expectation is set pretty high here. We're looking at who John is. We're expecting this great one to come. Our expectations are through the roof at this point. We expect this coming one to burst onto the scene in power and majesty, shaking the earth and establishing his kingdom from heaven. Anjanette and I walked to the, the voting location a few months ago. And uh, I had voted that morning. And so she, she walked in and I said, I'll, I'll wait out here. I'm going to talk with somebody. And so she went in and I saw some folks standing out in the parking lot and went over and talked to them. Uh, she came out after voting and I said, hey, meet um, meet my friend and my friend meet Anjanette and then um, they shook hands and uh, carried on some small talk and we walked away. And Anjanette said, who was that? Well, that was the mayor. You wouldn't know. He seemed so ordinary. Kind guy. And that silly little story captures just a glimpse of how Jesus just showed up on the scene as an obscure nobody. Look at the next verses. Remember, this is Jesus coming to fulfill all righteousness. And verse nine says, in those days, Jesus, by the way, Jesus was a very common name in those days. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. 
Are you kidding? The expectations have been set so high. Is this really all? Who is this guy? What is this obscure town, Nazareth? It's from outside anyway. It's one of those northern towns from Galilee. It didn't have much history. In fact, its reputation wasn't even that good. Nathaniel in John 1 says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus' obscurity is a massive part of Mark's crafting of his story. He says, this guy, Jesus, shows up on the scene. He doesn't impress off the bat. And this might explain why to so many throughout the book, they don't understand who he is. He just seems like another guy. You'll also notice in Mark's gospel, there's not a Christmas story. At Christmas time, we read the story of Jesus' birth from Luke. Well, verse nine implies the Christmas story. He showed up, he took on human flesh. He was born in Bethlehem, lived and was raised in Nazareth, this little town, the son of a carpenter. He took on human flesh. And so the Christmas story is captured here in a normal, unassuming arrival on the scene. And we'll answer in a a minute, why in the world was he baptized? We'll get there. But before we get to that, we have to see Mark does tell us, his readers, remember we're still in the prologue of his gospel. He tells us readers a little secret about Jesus that is not known by the other characters until later in the book. Verses 10 and 11 give us a peek behind the curtain. We get a backstage look. We see the heavens ripped open as Jesus was coming up out of the water. The heavens were ripped at the start of his earthly ministry. And here God the Father declares him to be the son of God as the heavens are torn This word ripped is used one other time in the gospel. And it's when Jesus on the cross died and then the curtain in the temple was ripped. And that was the completion of his ministry. Here we see him at the beginning. There we see him at the end. Here he was declared the son of God by the father. And on that, in that very instance, the Roman centurion said, surely this man was the son of God. Jesus' identity is clear as the heavens are torn open and we see God speaking, Jesus' identity. And this voice from heaven needs no further explanation. We know what prophets are. They speak on behalf of God. But here we have heaven itself speaking down. This is a voice of authority. This is God the Father. And as he speaks, he calls this man from the obscure town up in Galilee, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Mark is letting us see who this nobody is. And so as we carry through the book of Mark, we're going to know some things that the characters don't get. That's called real irony. That's literary irony. The readers get it. The characters don't. And we have to remember that through the doubts, through the difficulties, we still see who Jesus is. And that's true as we read this story. And it's also true for us in our life. We have been given a glimpse into who this Jesus is. The religious leaders in the story doubt him. The powerful ones doubt him. Even the disciples sometimes don't see him. In this world, 2022, there are a lot of religious leaders who doubt him. 
There are a lot of powerful people who doubt him, who see him as an obscure nobody, if he even existed, may have been just another prophet. He cannot be just another prophet. He is mightier than a prophet. And you and I have a sneak peek into who this Jesus is as we walk through this world, no matter what the authorities say, because God has revealed to us who this Jesus is. So in our doubts and in our difficulties, we remember we have a God who has become obscure to be like you and me. We have a God who has taken on boring life so that he might save you and me. He became like nobodies, misfits, lonely, outcasts, sinners. He did not take on sin, not his own, but he did take on ours because he became like us in order to save us. And we see in Hebrews 4 also that we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who became like us in every way. So let's remember as the world throws all kinds of challenges at our faith, some authorities say it's foolish to be a Christian. Some say you can't be logically consistent and be a Christian. Let's remember our source of authority. Let's remember our source of truth. It's God's revelation of Jesus Christ. What we find in his word is our source. Even if the world is throwing different lies at us, even the powerful ones in the world. So back to that question, why Jesus, the third person of the Trinity, the perfect one, why is he baptized? And here we find the power for our salvation. Yes, this was the inauguration of his ministry. This is the beginning of his work we find starting in verse 14. But also by being baptized, he took the place of his people. He stepped in for those who have been baptized, who had recommitted themselves to the law yet failed. He stepped in and he committed himself to covenant faithfulness and he succeeded. That role of covenant child to God had been played by Israel for centuries and they had failed time after time. Yet Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I will be Israel for you. I will do everything you're supposed to do in the covenant and I will succeed. And so in being baptized, he fulfilled all righteousness that humans had failed to do. That's what Matthew's telling of the story says. Jesus in Matthew's telling says that he must be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He took on the covenant responsibility of his people. He did everything they couldn't do. He obeyed the law. He loved the father with all his heart and soul and mind. He walked sinlessly. And so he stands in for the people of God in the way that we can't. So he takes the place of his people in his baptism. We also see that he stands in for Israel when we look at the very next verse, verse 12. This is next week's sermon. I'm not going to dive in, but Jesus is sent into the wilderness and is tempted for 40 days. There's another time when Israel was baptized in the Red Sea and then sent into the wilderness for 40 years. Here, Jesus follows the same pattern. He is baptized in the Jordan and then he is sent into the wilderness for 40 days and he succeeds. He says no to the temptations of Satan and he does all the righteousness that Israel could not do. But we also see that Jesus was baptized in order to foreshadow his death because baptism is a sign of death. 
Baptism represents death. In Mark 10, Jesus says to his disciples as he's about to be given up for crucifixion, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And then in verse 45, he says, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus in his baptism was about to die. And he is foreshadowing his death here. He's foreshadowing that moment when he forgives sins. And so you and I, when we, when we are baptized into Christ, we are joined to him. We die with him in our baptism, as Paul says in Romans 6, and we rise with him in new life. If Jesus had not been baptized, we could not join him in, the, in being baptized into death and rising to new life. He took our place and he welcomes us into his journey and his pattern of dying to self and rising to new life. And if you are a Christian and you have been baptized in the body of Christ and you've professed your faith, remember that it's here in the waters of baptism that we died to our old manner of life. It's here that we're joined to Christ. And when he died on the cross, he carried our old self with him and our sin. And he paid the penalty for that so that we might walk in newness of life as he was raised you're in Christ and you're weighed down by, the, by your sin, remember your baptism. If, you're, if your sin overwhelms you and you think, I can't believe I'm trapped in this sin again, remember your baptism. Remember that you're joined to the Savior who forgives sins. Remember that he has accomplished all the righteousness that you can't accomplish. Remember that he has taken that with him to the cross and paid for it. And for all of us, Christian or not, if you feel like a nobody, if you feel lonely, if you feel lost, if you feel obscure, you are the kind of person that Jesus loves. You are the kind of person that he identifies with. The world might not look at you as successful, but our Savior understands he became obscure. He took on human flesh. He took on nobodyness so that he might understand us. And then he powerfully stands in for nobodies like us. That gives us something to hold on to. That gives us hope that the one who is mightier than a prophet would stand in for us. Our response then is to say thank you. As Christians, we are called to gratitude time and time again. So let's thank God for his work of salvation from the beginning of time, through John the Baptist, through Jesus, and completed as Jesus returns. All his work on behalf of his people. Let's thank God for that. Let's thank God specifically for John the Baptist preparing the way, which shows us now that all, all that God has done to complete our salvation. Let's thank God for his Holy Spirit, which he gives to believers. And let's thank God for Jesus Christ who is mightier than any prophet, who knows us and loves us anyway, who gives us hope and stands in our place and died for us and raises us with him to new life. What a savior. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have set your love on your people and that you have been working salvation for us from before the beginning of time. And we get to see a glimpse of this through your word. 
Would we hold fast to what you have revealed? Would we remember who Jesus is no matter what the world throws at us and no matter what our circumstances might hold? Would we remember our sure foundation? And now as we prepare to come to your table and as we sing your praise, would we see Christ lifted up and respond in gratitude? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.